Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. It's Wednesday, October the 5th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I am delighted today to welcome Irish Times columnist Gerard Howlin, along with our politics team, Solworths, Jennifer Bray and Pat Leahy. Hello to you all. Hello. Good morning. Hello. Pat, I was away last week, um, so I missed the annual excitement of the budget, uh, but I followed the coverage with some interest. Has it all been put to bed now? Uh, yes and no. Um, so... The budget obviously is done. Many of the measures will be implemented over the coming weeks. Some of the once-off stuff requires legislation. That's beginning. Some of it went through Cabinet yesterday. There'll also be the finance bill and the social welfare bill, which will be done uh, in the weeks before Christmas. So the only stone in the shoe or stone in the budgetary shoe, uh, as it were, that remains is this uh, slight trouble over the concrete blocks levy, which is intended to pay for the remediation, the multi-billion euro remediation costs for houses damaged by MICA. And there is some opposition, um, or there is some concern at least on the government backbenches about this, and that's been rumbling uh, since the budget. But I don't get any huge anxiety uh, in government that is going to turn into a big political problem. Um, there is a motion uh, in uh, in the doll about it, but I think the sense, uh, and that'll be voted on tonight, but I think the sense uh, in and around government uh, is that uh, difficulties with this or backbenchers' concerns can be largely assuaged when it comes to be legislated for uh, in the finance bill. I mean, we always look out for budgetary banana skins, but... The, the recent history of budgetary banana skins is that, uh, it, you know, if they, you know, if somebody does slip on them, then the problem tends to be solved uh, in the finance bill. I'm a bit unclear, Pat. Where are the expressions of concern being voiced? Is that from within the industry or is it is it backbenchers looking into their hearts and well, it's feeling, yeah. feeling sore about first time buyers and the cost being passed on to them? Well, when something is a problem in the building industry is tends to find its way into the hearts of uh, of backbenchers or uh, at least some of them i think the concern is that the costs will be passed on to the purchasers of new houses or those you know who are for example you know paying at least in part for the remediation of their mica damaged homes and there is a concern about that and was discussed in the debate in the doll uh, in the doll last night the alternative view i suppose is that you know developers will price houses at what the market will bear and that the cost of of the house or the price of the the house rather pays only a 
partial there's only a partial relationship between it and uh, the actual cost of build, uh, of building it so um so we'll see how that'll play out once the once the finance bill but there is definitely some dissent on this uh, amongst uh, amongst government backbenchers i would imagine ministers will move to assuage that as i say once you get to the finance bill but generally jen that's a, pretty much a storm in a teacup and again looking at proceedings from afar last week it seemed to me that I suppose if you throw as much money at all the various problems the country has as as was thrown at all those problems last week, you're probably not going to have too many banana skins left to slip up on. Yes and no. I mean, like if I was to summarise the budget, I'd say it's the like the 11 billion budget that will never be enough, you know, uh, and, and that's the situation. And it was really interesting, you know, normally when you're kind of, you know, ringing around trying to get your briefings the days before the budget or the day before the budget about what's in it. You come across a lot of very excited people who are only, you know, more than happy to tell you, you know, the the various different wins in different parts of government uh, and all the money that's flowing in. But this time, actually, what I detected were was actually a lot of anxiety, anxiety that eating bread will soon be forgotten, anxiety that this, you know, 600 euro electricity credits, uh, which is one of the headline measures, that while it will be welcomed, of course, uh, that it won't nearly scratch the surface. And I think there is a realisation that they're going to be back in the same place very soon, uh, just after the new year. Um, and the other thing I would say about the concrete blocks, you know, I was thinking about this last night and talking to a couple of different people in government. There's, Pat's like spot on. There's no, like, the anxiety that's there or the worry that's there isn't causing them too much undue hassle. However, there's a really tricky grey area that I think could come up, which is, so basically, what the, there's a disagreement over how much this 10% levy will actually mean in the cost to, to first-time buyers or, or, or new bills. And the Department of Finance have estimated it could be anywhere up to 1400 for your traditional build. Um, the Society of Chartered Surveyors have said it could be up to 4000 I think actually the problem could be is when you hear case studies coming in of people who are getting the calculations for their buildings. Or, you know, I'd heard one story last night about a couple who estimated, I think it was a couple of grand on their new build, but they're building an agricultural shed, which it, it's so large and, and they generally are quite large, obviously. Um, that was an extra five grand. And that's where I think the rubber meet the road. If it actually turns out that these costs are far higher than the Department of Finance estimated or the surveyors estimated, then I think they could be in a tight spot. But even having said that, I think what you'll actually find is a watered-down version of the levy in that there will be so many exemptions that actually it won't be a political problem anymore. Jerry, you were writing in your column about several things this week, and we might touch on a couple of, of other ones uh, later, but yeah, you're not very impressed by this uh, this concrete block issue and the way it's being handled. No, I mean, it is uh, amusing that those who are concerned about the levy now and its knock-on effects on cattle sheds and people's houses had little or no concern to express when uh, largesse was being poured down on people uh, who have this problem in their homes to the extent that not just should it rebuild uh, an average home, but it should rebuild any home at full cost, regardless of how big it is. Uh, I don't think that's fair. I do think a large measure of social solidarity is required. Uh, I wouldn't like to be in those people's shoes for anything. I would like to see all of them in a decent habitation. As a taxpayer, I am happy to make a, a substantial contribution to that. But the redress scheme is over the top. That's water under the bridge now. And belly aching now uh, about the cost of this uh, is a bit rich because there was no concern about the cost of it then. And in relation to the positioning of the cost, 
the levy on blocks, which is effectively paid by people who are either houseless because they want to build a house or it's for a productive investment, whether that's a school or a cattle shed. It doesn't seem to me very smart. And it would seem to me to have been much better if it had been attached to the existing property tax, which there is a, a mechanism to do, so that those in houses who are relatively privileged, with or without a mortgage, could contribute to those who are houseless. But the politics of that is poisonous, wasn't even for contemplated for a single nanosecond, and is an illustration of the deepening and intergenerational inequality that uh, motivates policy decisions. I mean, you, your column this week is is quite bleak, uh, as, as, as a few of your previous ones have been about the current state of the political system. I've got to quote something that you say about the budget uh, here. You say that one benefit of the splurge of 11 billion euro is, it, and I quote, it may be sufficient antidote to keep politics off the streets this winter, and if it does, it's probably met its main objective. But it's done the government no good politically if opinion polls are correct. This is now a country where people can no longer be bought with their own money. And if true, that is an appalling vista for politics. Is that line slightly tongue-in-cheek or not? It is slightly tongue-in-cheek, of course. And by the way, I, I'm not uh, re- remotely bleak. I'm a very happy, optimistic person. Uh, but it's just calling uh, the political dynamic as it is. It's not something to be upset about. It's just if you recognise reality, you're better positioned to deal with it. Um, and in relation to the 11 bi- bi- billion, as Jennifer said, uh, it, it wasn't enough. And I suppose the, the reality of that is there are several, I think, cultural, political, economic reasons for that. It, it's a complex dynamic. Uh, but it is partially, I think, that there is a social contract that is broken. And if you're outside the loop, you're better educated than your parents. Um, you have were brought up to have expectations that you would rise above them. Uh, that if you're under 40, uh, you know, it's, it's just not happening for you. And you are very dislocated economically and in terms of your personal security. Because at a certain age, you don't care if you're sleeping on the couch, or at least I didn't for a short period of time. But that passes relatively quickly. Uh, and security becomes an issue. And then if you want to, to consider family and all of that, and the scale of that dislocation and security is such uh, that there isn't an, enough uh, largesse, I think, to to. To, to pacify us. And there was a poll in uh, last Sunday, and I think that showed that very clearly, whether future polls over the coming months, uh, as money tri- perkles down into people's pockets, shows any better for the government, let's wait and see. But as that money actually percolates into people's pockets, something else will happen. The bills that are bigger will arrive. When we touch on this question of a generational divide in Irish politics, Jen, it is customary for us to turn to you as the nearest thing we have as a, to a representative of, of, of the younger generation, which is which is thus affected. I mean, do you agree with what, what Jerry's saying there? And is that, as we've discussed previously here, one of the things that's driving the seemingly inexorable rise of Sinn Féin? Now, Hugh, when I first joined this podcast and the, and the politics team, you said that I was part of that generation and now I'm the closest thing I see I'm moving further and further and, and I have to I'm say, just trying to reflect reality here. It is then. reality. <laughs> we're thinking of we're thinking of getting rid of you for a younger model. That's fine. Do you know what? That's grand. I'll take a six month career break and you'll want me back by the time it's done. But no, um I, I do agree with Jared, actually I do, and I think on the, the intergenerational inequality, um and this is seen actually across Europe and in different countries. This could be, you know, one of the first generations who will genuinely be faring much worse than their parents and, and other generations gone previously. And that applies for loads of different things, earnings, housing, wealth. And Jared mentioned um, 
personal security, which is which is a massive issue. And even also, Jared mentioned education, though it was also the case that it was considered that this generation, even if you couldn't get access to a house or you couldn't get on the property ladder, you're not making as much money as your parents or you don't stand the same chances ever reaching those levels, um, that actually your education, uh, you would have been head and shoulders above in that way. And the, the big, I think there's a fear in government now that even that is under threat because, you know, because of the housing crisis, the accommodation crisis, there are also people, I think, now in families who genuinely won't be able to afford um, student accommodation or even find student accommodation. So I think even that... Uh, it, it is under threat, and there's, there, you know, there are, there's the general intergenerational inequality, and then there's the deeper inequalities because, obviously, more, but you know, better well-off uh, families can afford to put their kids through college, or they can afford to look after them when they're, you know, maybe doing apprenticeships or whatever. You know, Leo Varadkar referring to this bank of mum and dad, um, but then there's a lot of families who just simply can't. So even in there, there is, and not to be too depressing about it at all, but if you look at the challenges that are facing kind of younger generations now. You think about things like climate change and the climate crisis. All of those big targets that are in that plan, they all come towards the latter end of the plan. The big challenges have all been pushed back and it's the younger generation who will be forced to kind of bear those massive, massive costs. Um, And even like if I think of it in the spin of of the budget, on Budget Eve and on Budget Day in the Dáil, uh, during speeches, government ministers were talking about how pensioners would stand to gain, you know, uh, you know, two, at least two grand if you're a pensioner living alone. Um, and it was all of this focus on kind of now, I don't like this phrase personally, but it has been used in politics, the grey vote and this sense that like the power still lies uh, with, with the older voters and that there's still that obsession there in government. I remember Pat introduced me to the phrase on this podcast of gerontocracy. And I think it is a really interesting concept that that is still in Irish politics and politics across the EU where the power lies and just to sum just to sum it up yes I do think that's why well one of the reasons why Sinn Féin are on the rise because it's all very well and good and saying right here's an 11 billion budget we're going to throw a bit of money here we're going to throw a bit of money there you'll get a tenner here a fiver there and electricity credit none of that actually goes any way towards addressing the things that matter to younger voters. And when I say younger voters, I'm not just talking about, obviously not just talking about people who are 18, 19, 20, 21. People who are now all the way up to, you know, 40 um, are feeling are feeling it too. So I think just the budget has been, has been spun that way to a certain degree. And I think that Sinn Féin will continue to capitalise. And you saw that in their speeches in the Dáil when they were kind of giving out about the budget. They will continue to capitalise on the big issues, which are the deep societal inequality, structural problems in housing and in health. And the budget just doesn't do anything for those people apart from the rent credit, which, you know, you can argue the toss on that. It's interesting, Pat, to think of this idea of a generational divide as being something which is not peculiar to Ireland, that this is just an Irish flavour of the same demographic and political trends which we see, as Jen said, across the EU or even across the water. I mean, look across the water at the current state of chassis of the Conservative Party with a leader who was elected by a pretty elderly um, slice, very small slice of the United Kingdom population and is proposing measures which just by the nature of, you know, who owns the wealth in a country will benefit older people rather than younger people if they're implemented. And I note, for example, that they're, they're a big divide now, now that they've at least temporarily addressed the tax issue, is over um, is over benefits and pensions. And they've said, Pensions will be matched to inflation, 
but they seem very reluctant to say the same for benefits. So again and again and again, you see these kind of phenomena across a number of different countries. Yeah, I think that generational divide has become more uh, acute. There's lots of different reasons for it. Some of them related to demographics or are more older people who are they are, they are living longer and politically they're more reliable voters and also the people people in power by virtue of our kind of political structures, you know, tend, uh, uh, tend to be a bit older. And I, I suppose all that plays into the sort of picture that we're having today and gives you the result that, I mean, if you look at the opinion polls, I mean, I would suggest caution about, there was, I think, one poll in uh, one of the Sunday papers last week, which suggested no budget bounce whatsoever for the um, for the government. Um, I'd make two points about that, I think. One, that it was a, a poll for which sampling was begun though not finished, but certainly begun in advance of uh, uh, of the budget. But also I think that budget measures tend to have a political effect when they are implemented rather than uh, when, they're, when they're announced. I'm not saying that there will definitely be a budget bounce for the government uh, in polls over the, over the coming months, but I don't think it's too early to say that there, uh, that, that, that there isn't one. Um, uh, but the poll, the, the polls are very clear on the generational divide. Uh, be, you know, there's huge numbers of younger people are flocking to support Sinn Féin and, um, and, and support for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Fáil particularly, this was in evidence, the many grey heads at last weekend's Ardesh, but also for Fianna Gael is increasingly, uh, is increasingly concentrated in older demographics. That's not necessarily politically unsustainable, but I think it is socially, uh, it is socially dangerous. You would expect that democracy should be able to renew itself. You know, that, um, you know, if this is a social problem that, uh, that we have, then you expect younger people to vote for Sinn Féin in their uh, hundreds of thousands and put them uh, in government and 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 therefore place them into a position to uh, to remediate these generational unfairnesses. But then you poke into Sinn Fein's uh, policy platform, and you know you you see that they're the party that is, you know, doesn't want to extend the the, the pension age. It wants to reduce the pension age back to sixty five. It wants to do more of a favor for uh for older people it's um it's it's uh it, it it seems less interested in many other uh parties or that the certainly than the government parties in implementing the sort of measures that would tackle the climate crisis not least through the uh through the carbon tax and if there is to be a transfer of resources from wealthier older generations to more hard-pressed younger generations, then I fail to see that in uh, in the current Sinn Féin budgetary uh, budgetary plans. And I think there is a danger that, you know, while Sinn Féin are the standard bearers of those seeking, uh, seeking a change, that they will be confronted, uh, if they're in government, with very difficult choices that they haven't prepared either themselves for or the electorate, uh, the electorate for. So, um, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's as, you know, as simple or as straightforward as it 
first might appear. I mean, the, the, the ability of the political system to react to the needs of a changing electorate Jerry is pretty much at the core of what the political system, in theory at least, is supposed to be about. Whether it's whether it's like that in practice is another matter. I mean, another another element which some people have pointed to in recent years in Ireland and elsewhere is the decline of of political parties as 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 mass movements, as uh, as coalescing around real ideas, and their replacement by. I'm not sure, a very different kind of a landscape. I mean, this manifests itself in the complete collapse of traditional parties in, in some places in Europe, like like France and, and Italy, and in other places by it, by the parties being hijacked or hollowed out in some case, which might be more the case in the UK. And we've seen some of that here as well, aren't we? In that, the you know, Pat refers to the age profile of, of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. I mean, those parties are not what they used to be in that sense. No, they're not a shadow of their former selves, but I, I think politics is uh, changing, you know, magnificently well in, in terms of uh, changing demographics. Uh, and that's why those parties are smaller and other parties are bigger. So, you know, change is happening before rise on quite a significant scale. In the 2011 election, albeit in the teeth of an economic crash, we had the third largest turnover of parliamentarians in any democracy in the Western world since World War II. Uh, 2016 uh, wasn't hugely behind that. So the pace of change cumulatively over three elections so far, including 2011, uh, has been absolutely unprecedented uh, as accumulation compared to almost uh, in any other democracy. Uh, so we're, we're changing. We're really good at change. Yeah, but except that, isn't there a strange disjunction? And I think you point to this as being a, you know, and, and, and Michael Madul uh, writes something similar or related in, in today's Irish Times as well, that there's a kind of, it, there has been anyway, an inherent stability, or one might even say, some might say, you know, a certain sluggishness uh, in the Irish political system. So yes, you've had that massive turnover in the, in the parliamentarians who are elected at successive elections, but, you know, we've had, you know, one party has been in power now for for eleven years or so. I'm just looking at. We might touch on this later. You know, talk about Pascal Donoghue leaving um, leaving government. I mean, Pascal in the period that Pascal Donoghue has been Minister for Finance in Ireland, and I'm not saying this is a good thing. But there's been at least half a dozen chancellors of the Exchequer across the water, and Michael McDowell points out that uh, that our constitutional system kind of militates against the kind of chaos that we've seen in other places. Yeah, well, our, our system, which has some weaknesses, has extraordinary flexibilities. Uh, and the 1937 constitution is the oldest written constitution in, in Europe. Uh, Britain, of course, has an unwritten constitution. Uh, I think there's an argument that the Swedes might have an older one, but if you take into their huge changes in the 70s, you could say ours is older. But anyway, I leave that to an academic. Uh, so we have a very old uh, constitutional framework uh, that has proven to be extraordinarily flexible in terms of its political possibilities and the changing of the office of Taoiseach uh, between Fianna Fáil and the Gael on the 15th of December will be another example of that. Um, what is less clear is the capacity of the government within that system, because it's depending on proportional representation, to take decisions that are hard and then sustain them over time. And on that, we fail quite poorly, I think, and notwithstanding the fact that the state, by several measures, is, of course, extremely successful. Uh, this corporation tax, however real or unreal all of it might be in, in the medium to longer term, the fact is we have a really powerful uh, foreign direct investment platform in this country that has transformed the economy, and the largesse of that has helped transform society in terms of education and expectation, which, of course, because those people are now houseless, 
are incredibly disaffected because their expectations have not have have, have not been met. But I think two bigger things have happened, Hugh. One is that that cons- relatively conservative status quo held together for 90 years because half the people born in the state from the foundation to the 90s emigrated. So change makers went. Those left behind were older uh, and, and uh, more conservative, hence the status quo lasted in one degree or another, you could argue, certainly until the 90s, but arguably till 2011 when you had a huge uh, political crash. And, and the second thing then that's happening, particularly in relation to, to the older cohort, of which I am rapidly becoming one, is their, their longitudinity. Uh, so you have people living longer, more dependent for longer, in a framework which has not moved to take account of their longevity. And those younger people who are now staying, all that education, all that talent, all that energy, uh, their levels of appropriation are astonishingly poor by uh, historic standards. So there's been a complete decoupling of copulation and procreation in our society as the elderly <laughs> are, are living out ever longer. <laughs> And, uh, and there's all sorts of other cultural changes. So the whole communal sense in the country, I mean, it's the generation since that book Bowling Alone was written. Uh, you know, trade unions, churches were main places of the communal. Uh, they're very much not now. And that has, again, since has been revved up and accelerated, I think, by social media, where increasingly people are living in a pod in the ether, not in, not in the community. And all of this uh, comes together, cultural change, change in expectation, expectations not being delivered, younger people who are staying but having fewer children, and older people who are living on and on to indecent years of age. Well, and let's hope so. Hopefully let's hope so. We'll be among them. <laughs> uh, but but this, is, this, this is not sustainable. That is the problem. We can do this if we change the model. If people like you and me are told, frankly, you're going to work till 70 till you get a pension. That needs to be done. And if you do that as one among a number of measures, you free up significant resources on those fewer younger people who are working and carrying more dependence. And you, 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 you change the balance in terms of expectation and fairness. But it's just not on the, it's not on the agenda. But do you have any confidence that the system, as, as you've set it out there, is capable of, of, of doing that? No, none. But it's the, it's the parties that overwhelmingly represent older people that want to increase the pension age and the party that overwhelmingly represents younger people who want to reduce the pension age. Explain that. I can explain it. So Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Labour uh, committed to this policy in one way or another from 2010 on. Joan Burton, as a Labour minister, I think in 2014, took the first step. It was 10 years in the making. It was about to happen. Labour had a bold fast in the middle of the last general election campaign. Uh, it was a try on on their part that spectacularly backfired because Sinn Féin got all the political kudos. They got precisely none. The three parties who are behind this policy for good reasons, they didn't stand. They ran. And they left their credibility behind them and they left an enormous damage long term to this society and the expectations of, of younger people. And it folds into all sorts of different policies and it's not good and it's no end in sight of it. It's worth pointing out, Jen, that when we talk about the generational divide here, particularly when it comes to the pension age, it's not older people who are affected by the pension age because they're on the pension already. 
it's actually it's the likes of me and probably you, Jerry, uh, and 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 people in their in their forties and into their fifties who are who are probably most focused on this issue. But in a way, they're probably in a way the most significant power players in the Irish political system, aren't they? Yeah, I would I would say so. I, the other aspect is, of course, just to reinforce what's already been said, is is that by taking these measures or by delaying it or by not doing it, it's been made very clear that the way in which you pay for this is through increased PRSI. Um, which will have to happen in the next couple of years, which will be really politically unpopular. Um, and they've been, you know, not that they've danced around it, just that I don't think that they really grasped that the fact that younger voters won't look upon that very kindly. And, you know, Jerry's right, like what happened was the 2020 general election. It came up uh, during the campaign. It wasn't the biggest issue, the pension age at the start. It wasn't even the biggest issue towards the middle. It was somewhere just after the middle of the campaign that this emerged and all of a sudden politicians started talking about it coming up on the doorsteps. And I remember they all started running scared. I remember running after different parties, different ministers. I remember Leo Varadkar was doing, I think, a doorstep outside Croke Park. And there was a lot of like, oh, we're going to think about this. We're going to rethink it. Um, and that could be viewed as kind of a, a populist stance, and which, you know, which Sinn Féin have been accused of. And I think the government basically, you know, or the, the government that are there now, they, they did. They ran scared. They saw what a massive issue was becoming on the doorsteps. They didn't want to, you know, go down that road necessarily. So they, they created a fudge. And here we are. There's, there's one thing, further thing that strikes me about this, I'd be interested to know what you think about it, Jen, is that there may be a generational divide. There may be very different interests, depending, that people have uh, in, in politics, depending upon where they are in life. But that's not actually reflected in the way people think about their political identities. It may be the case that most young people currently, or the majority, or many young people, say that they're going to vote for Sinn Féin. But they're not doing it in order to stick it to the old people, because that's not the no. way that people think about it. It's not like class politics. It's not even like identity politics. People don't think of generational identity in the same way as they do of other ways that attach themselves to politics. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this idea of kind of, you know, left and right politics um, it, it's kind of disintegrating a little bit. Like uh, when I talk to people, like I've got much, I've got nine younger brothers and sisters. I'm from a very big family and all of their friends, they don't talk about politics in that way at all uh, or an identity sense. And, you know, you're talking there about the decline of traditional parties. Like there's been many, the academic paper, many of the newspaper think piece written about that decline all across the European Union. And it's not just the decline in the traditional parties or their structures. It's also a drop in actual voter turnout. Like in the 2014 European elections, I think the turnout was something like 43%, which was a record low. So there is a there is a disengagement there as well. And I think what those traditional parties have kind of failed to do across the European Union, you mentioned France, you know, I was reading a piece the other day about how since the 1950s, two thirds of France's prime ministers and presidents came from those traditional left and right parties, whereas by April, support for both had completely plummeted. And I think what they failed to do, those kind of traditional parties, is actually convince people uh, of all ages, actually, that they are up to the task of tackling the big issues, you know, climate change, security, immigration, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I don't think you can either discount, I mentioned populism either. There's been a clear rise in, in populism and populists come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, but... You can't deny that, that that's a fact of, of kind of modern politics. And also, and people kind of discount this as well, social media um, and the impact that social media has had. It has changed the pace of politics because, and I've talked to politicians in, in, in the current doll and they agree. They say that 
it was particularly veteran politicians, they say it used to be the case whereby if there was a controversy, they'd have time to get out ahead of it, think of a strategy, think of a plan. Whereas everything now plays out on social media, on Twitter, but not everything, but a lot of things do. And it's just changed the pace and it's changed people's expectations of having responses or answers. And it's made controversies kind of that bit more, I suppose, politically hot. And I think all of those things fed in together, the lack of ability to convince people that they're up to the task, the rise of populism and the rise of social media just has completely changed the face of politics. And that's why I think the left-right structure has given way maybe to a more radical versus traditional landscape. Yeah, and there's there's all kinds of complexities and contradictions there. One of the ones that strikes me just listening to you there is that on the one hand, you have a generation uh, who are disengaged from politics, are not interested in it, are less interested than their forebears were. And on the other hand, you have this white heat around controversies or so-called controversies within social media bubbles, possibly of some sort or another. How 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 real are they, you know? And to what extent mm. is this some kind of weird circus of performance? I'm so fascinated by that question. I really, really am because I have my doubts. I, I think, you know, the people who shout the loudest sometimes perhaps they have absolutely no political affiliation. And there's a lot of people, and I'm sure I'll get flack for saying it, there's a lot of people who genuinely just want to be outraged. They just want to be angry and they just want to fight. Um, and you see that on social media. Um, and I, I do wonder, I'm, I am interested in that question. To be honest with you, Hugh, like I don't have the answer to it, but it is something that I, I keep an eye on. And I think, you know, if we're looking towards a, a future of politics, maybe that's a little bit more, I don't know, mature, uh, that that wouldn't be how things play out. Having said that, as a journalist, I love it. You know, yarns everywhere, great. But um, in, in terms of democracy itself and, and engagement, it's very off-putting, I think. What do you think, Pat? Yeah, I think loads of political controversies that we get worked up over. And I mean, we're probably amongst the less excitable media outlets, um, but uh, they, they they don't matter all that much uh, in, in the longer term. And I'm not sure that they matter an awful lot to voters where things tend to matter to voters is when they know that it in you know impacts on their daily lives and that's why you know the big things like you know the you know the economy housing public services they're the things that voters tend to judge uh, governments on and uh, and 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 oppositions, uh, the, the the plans of opposition parties uh, on, and I think that will be the case when it comes to the next election as well. I do think that there has been a trend in uh, in Irish politics, and in a way, it has been facilitated by the economic success of the country. But there is a a, a trend away from. Uh, you know, explaining to voters that there are that there are trade offs. You know, I mean, if you want to make your pension system sustainable in the longer term, then people are either going to have to work longer, or they're going to have to pay more in taxes to sustain that system. Um, but there's a great reluctance to level uh, with voters, and you know, we've referred earlier to. The uh, the general election campaign when la- the last general election campaign when that pensions issue exploded it seems to me kind of half by accident and as Jerry says you know Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael went into full retreat uh, on it and uh, they 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 did so because they believed they were bleeding votes 
uh, on it. And I was discussing this with um, somebody senior in Fianna Fáil, uh, recently and kind of berating him uh, for the party's political cowardice on it. And he said, uh, in response, says, yes, uh, the typical, how, how typical of the Irish Times to be willing to fight uh, to the last drop of our blood uh, on this uh, on this subject. And, you know, I think to some degree there is, of course, a crying need for political leadership, but there's also a need for voters, you know, to face up to their responsibilities as well. And, you know, there is a tendency, a well-established tendency uh, in this country for voters to want Scandinavian levels of public services with American levels of taxation. And that may be sustainable for a period in which we are enjoying these bumper corporation tax receipts. We can't rely on it uh, forever. And I have a fear that there is uh, a reckoning ahead on that. I wonder what that's all going to mean, Jerry. I mean, again, looking a little bit more broadly overseas, you look at something like Italy, which is a very particular uh, landscape itself, but obviously a very recent election. And the Brothers of Italy, who rose from 4%, I think, at the last general election to more than a quarter of the vote this time. Their main selling point, it seemed to me, and there are lots of reasons to be concerned about them, but their main selling point seemed to be that they hadn't been ever, they hadn't been in government before, and that was why people voted for them. And you see that that kind of oscillation in, in a lot of electoral systems at the moment. And the other thing is that in the 2020 Irish general election, the campaign really mattered. The pension and certain other things. We saw a, a, really a massive swing from the local elections just a few months previously to the result of the general election. So there seems to be a lot more last-minute decision-making, perhaps driven by this accelerated political climate that we're, that we're seeing here. I mean, what, what do you think of that? Is everything much more up in the air, maybe? Absolutely. And of course, last minute decision making is important. And that campaign was very consequential, as was the one in 2016. Uh, arguably, the one in 2011 was much less so because uh, people were just so, there was a white anger out there in terms of being called. Uh, it was always going to be that way. Uh, but far fewer people have a pre-commitment to any political party going forward than they had in the past, even in the recent past. So uh, that speaks absolute volumes. There's more up in the air in terms of voter allegiance in every election as we go forward. Uh, ever fewer voters even stick to one part, from one party to the next, from election uh, to an election. So there's that fluidity, volatility uh, that is increasing. And that shows itself in uh, the decreasing duration of very many parliamentary careers. And as the time span of political life is compressed, uh, that in turn has a cultural compressing, in fact, on uh, the nature of politics and policies, uh, because fewer are prepared to be brave, uh, because the seat is more at risk, the future is more uncertain. Uh, and I'm not saying there was a huge amount of bravery ever, but I think there was a bit more because more people uh, felt more secure either in their seat or in their position in, in their party. And as we go into this uh, midterm 15th of December shuffle, which on, on the one hand is a brilliant example of the flexibility of our very flexible system, it also bears down on the political class because you realise, well, you, you're there until the 15th of December. Will I be there after? 
afterwards? Uh, what can I realistically do before then? And whatever I do, I better not have a problem surrounding me, the Minister for Muck, uh, in the second half of 2022, because I don't want to be in Dudu before the 15th of December and affect my situation going forward. So even that in the span of the life of one government, compresses what a, an individual minister might uh, feel is prudent. And prudence, we should never forget, is a virtue of sorts. <laughs> very, very good point. A point, we, a point we often forget. I do wonder about this this shuffle, Jen, and, and you know, against the backdrop of I accept these points about acceleration. But this government is very likely to see out pretty much its full five-year term. It's going to have a bit of a shuffle in December, obviously the very significant change at the top. I don't get the impression that the overall shuffle is going to be that dramatic, really. Um, and that, I mean, surely that's a sign of stability to some extent. Uh, hmm. Well, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, the, I, the fact of the matter is this was bet into the programme. Program. This is the agreement that they had from the very beginning was to have this reshuffle and, and, and this change, which I think Jerry was saying in his column is just another form of kind of actual continuity. But um, I don't. I think the only thing that will, and, and actually Pat said this before to come, the only thing that will really tear them down are each other. You know, it, if if they start proper infighting between them, I think that's the end of days. I do think that they will make it to the end of the term. Um, I think that the reshuffle, I wouldn't say it'd be, okay, it depends on who you are. If you're us, you'd probably be very interested in it. If you're a normal person, probably not. Um, and, you know, it, it, we'll be very interested in the spectacle of it and the personalities and who's in and who's out. But realistically, you're probably right. It's not going to be an earthquake. What about Pascal going, which is the rumours increasingly circulating around the place about Pascal Donoghue moving off to a, a major job in Europe? That would make things a little bit more changey, wouldn't it? Well, actually, Pat has the news on this. Pat had a piece yesterday, so Pat would be better positioned to answer this in terms of what he's actually doing. Yeah, there was, um, uh, in fact, I think Jerry flagged it uh, in his column yesterday that the position of the head of the European Stability Mechanism, which was the bailout, uh, the bailout mechanism set up uh, and which we avail of uh, ourselves, that, that the... Mm, the job of chief executive of that is 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 they're currently looking for a chief executive of that and um and there was a story going around that Pascal might be uh, interested in it but he knocked that uh, on the head after questions arising from uh, Jared's ob- observation of it yesterday uh, he 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 knocked it on the head uh, my expectation is that as generally expected uh, Pascal Donoghue and Michael McGrath will swap jobs and that in itself is probably you know the biggest stabilizing factor in the post reshuffle uh, political landscape because the two of them form probably the most important axis of uh, of government their relationship is uh, closer and more cooperative than that between their two bosses and uh, you know, I think we are heading into the, in 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 the post reshuffle period. We will be heading into a position where external pressures are uh, weighing ever more heavily uh, on on the government, uh, but also internal pressures uh, will be. There's the as yet unresolved situation of the the next. Fianna Fáil leader, who I think is likely to be in place before the next uh, election, and all the instability within that party that is um, uh, that, that 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 occasions, and there's also the fact that 
I think Leo Varadkar will be more focused, by virtue of the fact, I suppose, that his term ends with an election. He is likely to be more focused on the narrow political uh, requirements of of, of Fianna Gael and priorities of Fianna Gael as it approaches that election. Whereas uh, Micheál Martin, the criticism you hear of him from his own side is that he has been you know, paid much less attention to the political needs of Fianna Fáil than the political need, than the than the needs of of the government as a whole. And uh, so, I think there will be a different approach from the very top in the second half of the government. You've made a very good point, uh, Jerry, which is that you raised your head and looked a little bit at the, at the medium term calendar ahead, and twenty twenty three is barring disasters uh, or major events, a a year without elections. So it's a kind of a, I wouldn't describe it as a smooth run. It never is a smooth run, but those challenges don't arise. But in a way, it's a year of preparation for the government parties and other parties for 2024, which is exactly the opposite. It's very significant. There'll be local elections, there'll be European elections, and probably, because most governments don't go the full five term, there'll probably be a general election as well. So that's uh, that's showtime. Yeah, no, it will be showtime in 2024 if things get there. They probably will, by the way. And particularly in relation to uh, Leo Varadkar, he's now locked in to leading his party into an election. Um, and that's a very challenging position for him because he was the electoral white hope. He completely failed to deliver on those hopes uh, for his colleagues in the last election. And I don't think, while well, he has no rivals, he has relatively few supporters. Uh, you know, Fine Gael is, is not particularly happy. Uh, Fianna Fáil, with the Taoiseach's office, I think has turned the tables just a little on Fine Gael. I don't think they're the underdog anymore. I, I think they're at least equal and perhaps a little ahead in terms of that political competition for the centre of what remains of it. Uh, whether that'll change in the next period when the limelight of the Taoiseach's office is lost to Michal Martin and reverts to Leo Varadkar, we'll have to wait and see. I, I'm just perplexed about Fine Gael. I don't know what it is they are saying to the people who might want them. But that's me. Uh, in relation to Fianna Fáil and Michal Martin continually under threat in terms of his leadership, and in fact, he's far, far less under threat, actually, than some of his enemies might wish. And he's blessed in them. God bless them. Uh, they, I think few people have done as much for Michal Martin as those within his parliamentary party who want to get rid of him. Um, <laughs> if he gets into 2024, he has options. He has the option to lead his party into an election. And he has the option to exercise his party's option on the post of European Commissioner. Now, whether uh, that burden was one is one he was willing to take up in the circumstances uh, remains to be seen. And in relation to Pascal Donoghue, I think it's a credit to his standing in Europe that he self-selects for speculation when posts like Mr. Regling's come up. Last point before we go today, Pat, you have a piece in today's paper about the uh, the somewhat more emollient noises coming out of Westminster this week. Uh, there's lots of other kinds of noises coming out of British politics this week as well. But Steve Baker, who is um, probably one of the most prominent Brexiteers in the Conservative Party and now has a has a government position as uh, as uh, a junior secretary of state for Northern Ireland, um, he was sort of apologising for, for not taking enough notice of us previously, as far as I could make out. It's a kind of fascinating statement. And obviously, there were reciprocal nice noises coming from Micheál Martin. Does it all amount to a hill of beans, though? 
I think there's no doubt, uh, but that the mood music uh, has changed in uh, in in London, and there is a desire now to engage. Technical talks are beginning this week between the European Commission and British government uh, officials. But what I constantly hear from both Dublin and Brussels is, "Yeah, well, that's fine. Let's wait and see. This is fine. It's just uh, words, but let's see actions." And while the new British tone is certainly welcome. I don't think anybody in Dublin and Brussels especially is going to mistake it for changes of substance. Now, it is hoped that those changes in substance will come and that the British will come on to the pitch in a meaningful way and seek to, seek to do uh, a deal, which the EU has said from the word go that it is, um, uh, that it is ready to that it is ready to do. I mean, we do have to be, you know, I think we always have to be wary about, you know, putting on the green jersey when we're trying to analyse uh, analyze what's going on here. But as best as I can call it, there there does seem to have been a willingness from the EU to do a deal within the confines of the current uh, the current withdrawal treaty to take practical measures which would vastly eliminate the number of checks on goods coming into the north from um uh, from great britain and reduce the friction in trade between those two parts uh, of the united kingdom what there isn't in the eu is a willingness to tear up the agreement and start again because the agreement uh, simply doesn't uh, doesn't suit the british so i think what what eu leaders will be looking for is um is a sign from liz truss and maybe they will get it uh, tomorrow in Prague, where she uh, attends a meeting of the new European political community, which is essentially a device to keep the British talking to the uh, to, to to EU leaders on on uh, on a regular basis. So maybe the signal from Liz Truss will come uh, will, will come at that. Um, I don't think anybody is holding their breath, but they are hopeful that the uh, that it may come. I do wonder though, because we were told for months that the EU uh, wasn't going to give any further concessions to Boris Johnson because they thought his was a chaotic government and his uh, his prime ministership would be coming to an end shortly. And indeed, that proved to be the case. Is the same not exactly the same about Liz Truss right now if you look at the state of, of her government? And they're not better off waiting for Keir Starmer. As indeed they used to say about uh, Theresa May as well in the uh, the final period of her premiership. So we're now on to our third British prime minister in recent years that the EU could reasonably say of yeah, let's wait until the next guy and see uh, and see how that works out. That having been said, I think, um, and, and there's kind of two schools of thought on this, both reaching opposing conclusions. One which says, well, look, you know, because she's weak, she will want to deal with the EU to claim a victory and take that issue off the agenda. The other that says, well, because she's weak, she won't be able to do a deal because her own hardliners uh, won't uh, won't won't let her do it. I, I, I simply I simply don't know what the answer to that question is, but I think we will find it out over the coming weeks. All right, we'll leave it there. Listen, thanks very much, Pat, Jen and Jerry, for joining us today. This podcast is produced by Declan Conlon and our engineer is JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed, but until then, goodbye and thanks very much for listening.